Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. This sermon series, from now all the way through Easter, is called The Way, and it involves an examination of Jesus' teachings from his Sermon on the Mount, as found in the Gospel of Matthew. The importance behind this sermon series is that Jesus is revising many of the laws that we find in the Old Testament. It's important for our understanding as Christians to understand where he comes from and how he interprets those laws. I hope you enjoy this series. We each have one life to live. This is the life of Judas Iscariot. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. We each have one life to live. This is the life of Jesus Barabbas. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas? or Jesus who is called the Messiah. For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. And then he asked, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. We each have one life to live. This is the life of Pontius Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. 
See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. A poem by the theologian Padraig Otuma from Northern Ireland. The poem is entitled Pedagogy of Conflict. The poem talks about the ongoing battle between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland. This poem is amazing because even though he is talking about the struggle for civil rights in a foreign land, the exact same words could be applied to the racial divisions we face here in America. This poem has many verses, but it is the last verse that is truly and profoundly devastating. These are the words that form our theme for this evening's Good Friday service, One Life. When I was a child, I learned to count to five. One, two, three, four, five. But these days, I've been counting lives. So I count one life, one life, one life, one life. Because each time is the first time that that life has been taken. Legitimate target has 16 letters and one long, abominable space between two dehumanizing words. We each have one life to live. This is the life of the soldier who crucified Jesus. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. We each have one life to live. This is the life of Jesus of Nazareth. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it, with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, 
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, truly, this man was God's son. One life. Each of us has one life to live. And tonight we are here to remember the one life of Jesus of Nazareth. The reason why we remember the life of Jesus of Nazareth is because of the way he chose to live. But what's even more remarkable about Jesus is not just how he lived, but also how he died. When most people die, their work is over. It ends. They can do no more here on this earth. But that's not what happened with Jesus. When he died, something very important occurred. His death amplified his life. And it made it so that it became a spark that would inspire millions of others to be exactly like him, to try to follow in his footsteps. So if we're going to understand Jesus' death, which is our purpose here this evening, we first have to understand Jesus' one life. To appreciate who Jesus was, how he grew up, we have to understand the circumstances into which he was born. Jesus was born in an area of the Middle East known as Galilee. As we all know, he came from a village called Nazareth. Now, the people of Galilee were primarily peasants. These are people who were farmers and shepherds. They lived off the land and they were quite poor. For many, many centuries, these people had, had hard but manageable lives. Well, this particular area of the world, it was overtaken, it was gobbled up by various nations and empires. And what's amazing about these people who lived here is that they were able to maintain a sense of their identity as the Jewish people. They were proud of the fact that they believed that their God was the creator of the universe. And they believed that their God was going to be there for them no matter what because of all the tragedies that they had faced during their nation's history. Well, in 27 BC, this area of the world, it was gobbled up once again by the newly formed Roman Empire. This empire was run by a man named Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar had a very simple philosophy of rule. You will do what I say, or you will be killed. The way Augustus decided that he was going to enforce this new way of ruling his empire was that he was going to have soldiers stationed all over the empire. Everywhere you looked, there would be soldiers who would be watching what you were doing, and they were there to enforce the laws of the empire with impunity. Now, the people of Galilee, they immediately noticed the difference. Prior to the Roman Empire, they could go about their lives barely noticing the military presence of the ruling nation. The only time you'd see a soldier is if there was some skirmish that needed to be put down. But now, all of a sudden, soldiers were everywhere. They were in the marketplace where you did your buying of your food. 
They were patrolling the streets of your neighborhood. They were everywhere you looked, and they had no qualms about harassing you. They would see you walking down the street, and they would shake you down, and they would say, where are you going? And they might ask you to carry their packs for them. Now, their packs weighed close to 100 pounds, and it was legal for a Roman soldier to ask a Jew to carry their packs up to 1,000 paces, nearly one mile. That is no small imposition. Roman soldiers also got paid very little money. And so it was not uncommon for them to want to try to bring you in on false charges. And then to try to say, well, if you want protection, all you have to do is pay me a bribe. Furthermore, the people of Galilee, prior to the Roman Empire, they could subsist on a manageable income. But now, all of a sudden, that little income that they had, it started to nosedive. And the reason why is because of the way the Romans collected taxes in the Roman Empire. I want to take you through this so you can appreciate how good you have it when it comes to taxes. <laughs> so the way it worked in the Roman Empire is that it started off with the Roman government in Italy. And they would have a number that they needed to be collected to run their particular government, all the things they needed to do. So then they would send that number out to the provincial leaders and say, this is what you need to collect. So the provincial leaders, they would look at their government and they would inflate that number a little bit because they needed to skim some off the top, not only for themselves, but to make sure that their governments could run properly. Then they would gather together and collect the chief tax collectors. Now these are the people who are responsible for starting to collect some of these taxes. And so they bring their number to the chief tax collectors and they see it and they say, huh, well I'm going to inflate that number a little bit more. So they would then go to the local tax collectors. These are the people who actually collect money from the people and say, you need to collect X amount of dollars. But what do you think that the local tax collector did? He inflated it even further. Now, all told, by the time that the local tax collector was collecting the actual money from the people of the Roman Empire, your tax rate could range anywhere from 40 to 90%. It just depended on how much each level of the hierarchy inflated those numbers. The people who, of course, got gouged the worst were the peasants, though, because they didn't have very much money to begin with, and so even though they weren't paying very much, what they paid represented a huge percentage of their income. So you can imagine what it was like to be a peasant at this time. There was so much stress in your day-to-day -day life. Every time you walked out the door, you had to fear that maybe some soldier was going to harass you, arrest you, maybe even beat you. And then, on top of that, you're literally getting robbed blind by the tax collectors, and if you don't pay, then they're going to throw you into debtor's prison, at which time you have six months. If you don't pay up in six months, they sell you off as a slave. This is the world into which Jesus was born. And by the time he was entering into his early 20s, things had gotten really, really bad. So, by the time he was at his early 20s, the Roman Empire had been there for close to 50 years. And as you can imagine, the tension between the Roman government and the peasants of Galilee, it was at an all-time high. Because they'd been collecting so much taxes from them, they could barely afford to eat, and they were getting kicked off of their land. So what happened was, these groups of peasants, they would band together in groups of 
500,000, 2,000, 3,000, and they would raid cities. They would go into a city and they would try to shake down a wealthy landowner. They would hold hostages. They would do whatever they needed to do to try to make their point. But you can guess what happened to them, right? The Roman government would come in, they would send in their soldiers, and all of these people would be killed. Now you have to understand this in order to understand why Jesus designed his movement the way he did. He created his movement in reaction to a very particular set of circumstances. People were drawn to Jesus not just because he was a man of deep spirituality, which he was, but because also he was a man who stood up in the face of severe injustice. And he said, this is unacceptable. What you are doing to the Jewish people is wrong, and something has got to change. But the difference between Jesus and all of the other leaders of the peasants who came before him is that he had a very different kind of strategy when it came to dealing with the people in power. Jesus believed very strongly in the values of nonviolence. He was explicit with his followers. Under no circumstances are you to fight back. I don't care how bad it gets. You must always turn the other cheek and love your enemy. Now you can probably imagine how his disciples felt about this. They're sitting there thinking to themselves, why are we doing this? Aren't we just setting ourselves up for a situation where we're just going to get slaughtered? And I think of Jesus having this conversation with his disciples saying, look, I know it sounds crazy, but we've seen what happens when we try to go up against them with force. It's a strategy that does not work. They are too strong. They are too powerful. We cannot beat them in a head-to-head -head conflict. So we need to try a different strategy. As opposed to trying to provoke them through uprisings, let's provoke them through love. So when they come at us and they try to strike us, we don't hit back. When they come to us and they tell us to carry their stuff, we go farther than what they asked. When they come to collect money from us, the taxes, we give them more than what they require. And you can just imagine the disciples getting so upset about this and saying, what will that achieve? And Jesus looking right back at them and saying, I know that you may not understand this, but the way that you change people is not by overpowering them. No, the way you change people is by making them reflect on the morality of their actions. What he did not tell his disciples, though, at that time, is that in order for Jesus' philosophy, his way of life, to actually work, in order for people to truly be changed, you have to live it out all the way to the end. You have to embody those principles of nonviolence so much that you're willing to sacrifice your own life. That's the only way that it's really going to work. And so he's trying to impart this to his disciples, but it's hard, right? You can't just tell them that. You have to show them. They have to understand the sacrifice that's being asked of them. And that's what happens tonight. He goes to Jerusalem. He is arrested and executed for treason. And did you notice what happened in what we read this evening? He offers no defense for his actions. None whatsoever. That is true 
nonviolence. No defense for his actions. Now, to be clear, the disciples, they were absolutely devastated by Jesus' death. They thought, this is the end of his movement. It's over. Yeah, his philosophies, they might have been different from everyone else. But man, he ended up in the exact same place as everyone who goes up against the Roman government. He was killed. But that wasn't the end of his movement, was it? In fact, his sacrifice would be the spark that would inspire countless others to follow in his footsteps. You see, what the disciples could not appreciate at the time of Jesus' death is that Jesus' way of life, his philosophies, they do not produce immediate results in the same way that violence and revolution produce immediate results. They take time to change things, don't they? It can take years, it can take decades, it can take generations, but it does work. This is what happened in the Roman Empire. Jesus is executed sometime around 30, 33. And his movement's pretty small at that point. But after he dies, it starts to grow and grow and gain momentum. And after a couple of centuries, there are so many people who identify as Christian that all of a sudden, those tactics of violence for control that the Roman government is using, they don't work well anymore. Because every time they come at somebody, it just helps Christianity gain more momentum. Until eventually, Christianity becomes an officially recognized religion of the Roman Empire, and as you all know, it eventually becomes the state religion of Rome. What this proves is that Jesus' philosophies, Jesus' way of life, that they have the ability to dramatically change the world for the better. And we've seen this again and again throughout history. When large groups of people live in to Jesus' way of life, amazing things are possible. You all have seen this in your own lives. The most recent time that this happened was during the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 60s. At the turn of the 20th century, in the early decades of the 20th century, the United States had created an environment for African Americans that was very similar to the environment faced by Jews in first century from the Roman Empire. If you were an African American, you faced constant hostility from the ruling white classes. You could not leave your house without fear that if you saw a white person and that white person felt antagonized by you, that you could get arrested, or even worse, they could incite a mob to lynch you. And because the economy was driven by white Americans, most of the black population had no chance for upward mobility outside of menial labor. Therefore, it's not surprising that given the parallels between the Jews of the first century and the African Americans of the 20th century, that when the Civil Rights Movement formed in the early 1950s, there were two camps within the movement jockeying for power and debating what were the best tactics to achieve what they wanted. One camp came forward and said, no, we need to use force and violence to go up against our white oppressors. And then, the other movement, which was spearheaded by Martin Luther King Jr., was trying to use nonviolence. And if you've read anything about this debate, it was fierce within the movement, because so many black lives had already been lost to the Ku Klux Klan. If they did not defend themselves, there was great fear that ultimately, more lives could be lost. 
and who knows how many that could be. But Martin Luther King Jr., he argued that if you used violence, if you used force, then white Americans would have no reason to change their minds. But if you use nonviolence, it forces the perpetrators of racism to have to reflect on the morality of their actions. And we all know that King was ultimately the winner of this argument. But what you may not know is that King also understood that if he was going to do this, he had to live it out like Jesus did. He would have to embody the values of nonviolence so much that he had to be willing to sacrifice his own life. And his followers saw that in him. They were willing to live it out because he was willing to live it out. But as I told you earlier, Jesus' way, his philosophies, they do not produce immediate results. And there was a time when King wondered whether anything was going to change. People were getting worn down. They had been going through the motions for a long time, and nothing was happening. But then, in the early 1960s, those barriers began to fall. And at least legally, anyway, the United States recognized that racism is wrong and that all people deserve respect, dignity, and equality. We seem to be on the precipice of a real revolution. All of a sudden, Jesus' way of life, it was propelling our nation towards an era of unprecedented healing. And then all of a sudden, just like that, everything came to a halt. When in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. The most important voice of the black community had been snuffed out. Now, there were many, many leaders of the civil rights movement. But Martin Luther King Jr. was important because he was a bridge between the black and the white communities. When he spoke, white people listened to him. And that's what made him so important. When he said, this is unacceptable. What you are doing to the black community is wrong, and something has got to change. When he said that, the white community listened to what he had to say. So many people had put their hopes on Martin Luther King Jr., and when he died, there was this huge void that nobody could really step in to fill in the same way. But like Jesus, King's death would inspire countless others to walk in his footsteps. And now, almost 50 years after his death, the situation for minorities in America, it has improved, but not as substantially as many of us would like to believe. Yes, there are no longer overtly racist laws on the books that strip African Americans of their civil liberties, but that by no means means that it's a level playing field for everyone. African Americans represent 6.5% of the American population, but they represent 40% of the prison populace. To put this another way, if you are a white male, you have a 5% chance of ending up behind bars. Whereas if you are an African American male, you have a 33% chance, a 1 in 3 chance, that you will end up in prison during your lifetime. These statistics are even more shocking when you look at the fact that America has the largest prison population in the world at almost 2.2 million. We imprison more people than China, 
which has four times our population. They have 1.3 billion people. We have 318 million. They, we imprison more than China and Russia, which is a semi-totalitarian state run by Vladimir Putin. For a country that touts freedom as its top priority, something feels a little bit out of whack. Now, whether it's intentional or not, it's hard to look at these statistics and not feel that there's not something askew with the American justice system. In fact, if you look at the incarceration rate of African Americans in 2017 and compare it with the incarceration rate of Jews in first century Palestine, in that area of Galilee where they would be taken to debtor's prison and then sold off as slaves, what you will see is that the incarceration rates are almost equal. In other words, the conditions that created Jesus' movement in the first century are the exact same kind of conditions that are creating the modern civil rights movement here in America in 2017. In fact, their message is the exact same thing as Jesus' message. If you listen to the modern civil rights movement, they are saying, this is unacceptable. The way the American justice system is treating African Americans is wrong and something has got to change. And I don't think that there's probably a single person in here looking at these statistics who would disagree with that. I've even spoken with police officers who are members of this congregation and they come up to me and they say, yes, Alex, I agree with you. Something needs to change. The question is, what needs to change? Is it the way that we police our streets? Is it the way that we prosecute crimes? Is it the way that we write our laws? Is it the way that we deal with the issue of poverty in this country? Or is it a little bit of all of those things? I think we all know that this issue, it's so challenging, it's so multi-layered, that there is no one silver bullet that can simply solve it. But what I do know for a fact is that as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, I am called to be part of the solution to this problem. Do you feel that you are called to be part of the solution to this problem? I hope that you do. If you are a follower of Jesus' way, if you believe in what Jesus promotes, when you see something like this, this is what we are called to combat in our lives. And if you're going to be part of the solution, what that means is that we have to understand the depth of the problem, which is admittedly challenging for a congregation like ours, who is predominantly white and doesn't really understand the experience of what it's like to be a black person in America. So to that end, I would like to conclude this evening by showing you a video that I have put together. You will see this video nowhere else. I created it myself. It's called One Life. And the entire purpose of it is for you to glean a little bit of an understanding of what it's like to be a person of color here in America. Now, the video itself is self-explanatory for the most part. But there's one image at the end that I want to tell you about before you see it. The, the image that you will see, the photo that you will see at the very end is of a young man named Khalif Browder. If you do not know Khalif's story, it is very sad and it is also very illustrative of the problems that we have with our American justice system. So Khalif Browder, he was walking down the street of the Bronx one evening in 2010 and he was arrested 
for allegedly stealing a backpack. A store owner had misidentified Khalif and confused him with another black teenager. But he was arrested and he was taken to jail and because Khalif could not afford bail, because he was too poor, he had to await trial while he was in jail. But if you're in the Bronx, the place where you await trial is Rikers Island. So they send him off to Rikers Island, and because he's not part of a gang, and he refuses to join a gang, he now becomes the target of all these different people. And he's getting beat up so much that they end up placing him in solitary confinement. Another thing you need to know is that the Bronx court system is greatly backlogged. It took more than three years for his case to go to trial. Of the more than a thousand days that he spent on Rikers Island, 800 of those were spent in solitary confinement for a crime he did not commit. When he eventually did go to trial, the judge looked at his case and said, look, you've served your time, you can go home, you just need to plead guilty to this, I'll send you home today. And he looked the judge right in the eye and said, I will not plead guilty because I did not commit this crime. The judge was astonished. He couldn't believe it. This kid had been there for three years. So he had to send him back to Rikers Island. Eventually, the prosecution just dropped the case against him. On May 29th, 2013, Khalif finally left Rikers Island. But when he went home, he was not the same person who had gone in. He now was struggling due to his time in solitary confinement. He was suffering from severe depression, and he had trouble interacting with other people. And as his story became more well-known in New York, reporters would come up and interview him, and this is one thing that he said. He said, I'm mentally scarred right now. That's how I feel, because there are certain things that changed about me and they might not go back. On June 6, 2015, two years after Khalif was released from prison, he committed suicide. He's a victim of a system that frankly should have never placed him there. One life, we each have one life to live. You all know that. Khalif had his life taken from him. As Christians, I hope that we can sit here and stand together and believe and know that we need to stand up we need to speak out, and we need to make sure that what happened to Khalif never happens again. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.